Well, it has been an interesting week for all of us. And I'm sure that Pastor Jeff's announcement is probably front and center in all of our minds. We're praying for the Bucknams, we're praying for Northview, and we just have to admit it's a bittersweet time for us. Uh, very excited about the door that God has opened for Jeff and the opportunity in front of him. It's a, an assignment that really fits his gifts very well. But of course, from our side, it's sad. We're going to miss this guy like crazy. We've benefited so much from his ministry for so many years. And so look forward to hearing from him in the coming weeks. He'll have opportunity to share more of the details with you and to share his heart as he preaches several sermons in these next couple months. And the plan, of course, is to uh, hear his heart and to hear from him. But you know what? It's interesting. Uh, we, we, we debated, and you can imagine, do we step away from this series? Do we do something different this weekend? How do you handle these transitional times? But quite frankly, there's no text that you go to, to oh, here's the text you preach when your pastor resigns. And we laid out the Malachi series almost a year ago already. I thought, you know what, let's just keep plowing, let's dig into the text and see what God has to say to us. And interesting, as I studied, uh, the warning of this text is, is definitely there, but the context is really salient because the context for the warning is actually in a time of leadership transition. It's precisely what had taken place in this story. You see, the leader who had rallied these people to build to restore and to renew, rejuvenate the city of Jerusalem, has now left. And in his absence, which is not an uncommon story, in this leadership vacuum, the people have gone crazy. When leadership is absent, people do dumb things. Uh, you will remember in the book of Judges, there was no king in the land and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, in the English language, we have an idiom, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Uh, it's why every parent of teenagers warns them, we're leaving you alone in the house. Make sure you do not destroy the place. We're going to dig deep into the historical context and what the Bible has to say here in the book of Malachi. So I invite you to have your Bibles with you, probably a notepad because there's a lot of cross-referencing in this message and we're gonna dive in deep, but let's pray together. So Father, I pray that in this time together today that you'd speak to us. I pray for the men and women, the boys and girls who are listening to this message. Lord, there is so much truth that we need to take into our hearts out of the principles of this text. And so I pray that you'd give us ears to hear uh, that you would keep the enemy from confusing us and instead let us receive the word that it would be life to us uh, and that it would come alive to us. And so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Malachi is a revivalist and he's crying out to God's people that it's time. It's time to get right with the Lord. It's time for you to stop playing church. It's time for you to get off the fence. It's time for you to take your spiritual commitment seriously. It is time. That's Malachi's message. And in this ancient book, you might wonder, does it have anything relevant for us today? And I can guarantee you that it is an incredibly relevant book. Every generation of the followers of God have struggled with these issues, the issues found in this book. Every generation fights against spiritual apathy and boredom and complacency. Left to ourselves, to our own devices, we tend to theological drift. 
How many people do you know that who were one time on fire for the Lord, but gradually grew cold, gradually drifted away, and maybe eventually left the faith entirely over a period of time? Every generation's battle is to keep the word of God high and lifted up and exalted and obeyed in our lives. And the oldest spiritual battle is Satan's battle against the church to undermine our trust in the word of God. If he, Satan, can cause us to doubt the truth or the relevance of this book, then he has won the battle. He's got us right where he wants us. In fact, the very first words that we have recorded from the, the, the voice of that old serpent in the garden were those words, did God really say, calling into question God's word. So I hope that the Spirit of God will convince you that this 25-year-old book has some relevance for you today. We are in chapter 2, and it's sort of like looking over the shoulder of an employee who's going through a job performance review, if you will. So hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Malachi 2, 1-9 reads this way, And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you've not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was found in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you've turned away, and by your teaching you've caused many to stumble. You've violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you've not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Now, it's a heavy text. I'm sure that most of you have at some point in your life gone through a work review, a job performance of some form, either formal or informal. Some employers are better than these than others in their hiring and in their firing, the work ethic, the expectations that the employer has, the attitudes, the actions, the values that the company expects of its employees. So for example, if you work at McDonald's, you will know that they have three core values. The first is that their food is consistent. No matter where you go in the world, you will get the same consistency of food. Secondly, they want to be the fastest fast food joint on the planet. And third, they want to have some fun. So they've got toys, they've got partnerships with Pixar, etc. That's McDonald's. If you apply to work at Disney, you will know that you have to be a happy person, or at least pretend to be a happy person, because Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. Our Northview staff actually have three core values that we base our job performance reviews on. And they're the values we wanna double the master's money. In other words, we wanna take the talents 
the treasures that he's given us, we want to work hard and we want to put them into investments for the kingdom. We want to work hard, double the master's money. Uh, a humble, positive attitude that we don't take ourselves too seriously, that we're willing to laugh at ourselves, that we're willing to learn from others, that we don't get proud and boastful about what God is doing through the ministries here. And finally, the third one is we want to win as a team. That there's no silos, that it's all for one, one for all, all hands on deck. And so that's how we evaluate one another at the staff table here at Northview. But in this case, Malachi is looking over the leader, uh, the, the leader's shoulder, if you will, and they're getting this performance review. And the simple flyover basically says this, you're not doing your job, you're failing. If you want the specifics, just scan back through that text again. In verse 2, you've not listened well. You've not honored my name. Verse 4 to 6, you've not walked in reverence. You've not stood in awe of me. You've forgotten your heritage. You've forgotten the passion and the fire of Levi that should be yours. Verse 7, you should preserve the word of the Lord. Your lips should be the lips that teach truth. Verse 9, you've been skipping the hard chunks of Scripture. You're showing partiality in your teaching. You need to teach the whole counsel of God and stop picking and choosing the sections that you will teach. The guts of this leadership review, if you wanted to boil it down to just one sentence, it might be verse 8. You have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. That's the summary. You have drifted and you're now causing others to drift in your steps. That's the flyover. You're not doing your job. But the text, to really have the impact that it must have, we've got to take a deep dive. We've got to get back inside the historical moment. We must try to enter into the context of what was going on in this time and place and season. And if you've done any work in biblical interpretation or the, the the school of thought called hermeneutics, how do we interpret the scripture? You will know that the first rule of Bible inter interpretation is context, context, context. What did these words mean to the original hearers? What was the context that they were living in? What was going on in that historical moment in time? History matters. Context matters. What's going on behind the scenes matters. If you were writing a history on Eastern European nations, go back a hundred years, and you're writing about Poland in the 1930s, and you fail to mention that Nazi Germany is uh, amassing its armies on the border and is going to invade Poland in 1939, you have missed a massive piece of the history of Eastern Europe. If you decide to write some history on New York City around the turn of this century, and you fail to mention that on September 11th, 2001, that terrorists attacked that city, you have missed an entire chunk of the context. The same is true here. If you want to understand the greater context of what's going on, you've got to do some background work. Several other Old Testament books will help you. Nehemiah and Ezra in particular, Haggai and Zechariah, and even the longer book, Jeremiah, is critical. And there is a deep well of information that should inform and challenge us. So I'm going to just say, stay with me. Uh, it, this might feel a little bit more like a Bible school classroom than a sermon, but we'll get to the application at the end. I want to dig a really deep well historically with you. So stay with me. 
Israel has been invaded and conquered by Babylon. This is the context. Babylon, in turn, is conquered by the Medo-Persians, and a new king in the Medo-Persian Empire says you can go home and rebuild your city. So there are six names that you should have in your mind in the context of this story. Just historical figures, Cyrus and Zerubbabel. Cyrus and Zerubbabel. They are responsible for the physical rebuilding of the temple. And then you've got two kick-butt preachers, Haggai and Zechariah. They are responsible for keeping the people on track spiritually. They were fiery preachers. And then finally, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, who is a preacher, a priest, a scribe, a teacher. And Nehemiah, who is a catalytic city builder and a spiritual leader. So the larger story... Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon, 586 B.C., 70 years later, according to the prophecies before, a king named Cyrus says you can go back and rebuild in 516 B.C. And it takes several decades actually for that temple to be rebuilt because there is a massive amount of, of opposition. But if you fast forward up to Ezra and Nehemiah's time, you see the people in the greatest rebuilding effort ever. And in Nehemiah 8, it records the events that are nothing short of full-on revival. And we're going to come back to this because that's so important. But for now, I just want to take note of this. After the revival services are done, Nehemiah, this leader, is called back to Persia. And he's gone for several years back working for the king. And if you're going to fully appreciate Malachi, you've got to understand this context. Because while Nehemiah is gone, the people go crazy. And God sends a preacher. Malachi was written in that time of leadership vacuum. He takes on the spiritual leaders of the nation and he basically says to them, the mess that we're in is your fault. You've not been doing your job. You've got to start leading these people again. Specifically, you have failed at upholding your covenant, the covenant of Levi. Okay, press pause, full stop. Stop the movie, stop the video, stop the audio. It's tempting when you're reading this text, an Old Testament text like this, you see a phrase like the covenant of Levi, just keep rolling. Just read over it, say it really quickly, clear your throat, move on. But we just can't do that. It's referred to three times in our text today, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. It's obviously important. And someone might be asking, I don't even know who Levi is, and what's the covenant about? And honestly, we could spend several hours here piecing together the threads of history, connecting the dots. I love this stuff. I love digging back into the other Old Testament books and seeing how this guy connects to this guy and this story to that story. And we could spend a lot of time here that we don't have. But stay with me. I want to just give you the Coles notes. And so the first question for someone might be, who's Levi? Well, if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, first of all, welcome here. But just a quick crash course on Jewish history. God calls a man named Abraham who becomes the father of the Jewish faith and ultimately the father of the Christian faith because Jesus Christ is born into his family tree. And God tells Abraham all nations are going to be blessed through your descendants. Abraham is the father of Isaac. 
Isaac is the father of Jacob, who we met a couple weeks ago. Pastor Jeff was preaching chapter 1, where it refers to Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the father of the tribes of Israel. You may have heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are Jacob's boys. Levi is the third son in that brood of 12 brothers. And in this context, the covenant of Levi is spoken of, and we could look at it in three different ways. We could look at it just generally, the call on the Levites. The Levites were set apart to be the priests, the teachers, the worship leaders. Uh, they, we might say today they're the church staff. Uh, they were to make sure that the law of God given through Moses was carried out. And so in a really general sense, you could say that the covenant of Levi just simply upholds the law of Moses. It's a covenant of blessing and cursing. You obey the Lord and you'll be blessed. If you rebel and you walk away, your life is going to implode around you. In short, God's saying, I'm offering you a choice. And there's a really great summary of this blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is saying, This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. So in a general sense, covenant of Levi, just uphold the law. But secondly... There is a specific call on the tribe of Levi, and you might, you might say, why the tribe of Levi? And this is where we don't have time, but pull out your notepad and jot down these other texts. I'll just refer to three stories that are salient to this conversation. God called them because their zeal for the Lord, their passion for righteousness and for the holiness of God. Genesis 34 is the first story where Jacob has settled in Canaan, and his only daughter, Dinah, goes into a town close by. A guy sees her, falls in love with her, grabs her, snatches her, and he violates her. And her brothers are so angry, and we won't go into the details, but they take revenge on this village. And the zeal for their sister's righteousness, for her dignity, comes out in the fire of these sons, specifically Levi and Simeon. In Exodus 32, there's another story. Uh, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. He is talking to God and he's receiving the law. And while Moses is gone, in the absence of leadership, in a leadership vacuum, the people go crazy. Moses can hear the partying happening down below. The Lord says, I'm going to destroy those people. Moses intercedes, don't do that, Lord. And he goes down and Moses cries out, who is on the Lord's side? Who will come and stand with me? Who will step out from this rubble and stand with me? And we're told the tribe of Levi steps forward. And in Exodus 32, you have been set apart to the Lord Today And the context says it's because of their zeal for the Lord they're set apart. One more story. Numbers 25. They've wandered through the wilderness. They are now camped at Peor. And there's a story here about of a king named Balak who wants to curse them. He hires a prophet, Balaam, to curse them. Every time he curses, the Lord changes his words to blessing. 
And he's like, okay, I've got another strategy. If the Lord won't allow me to curse them, then we'll go with this. If we can get the Moabite women to seduce them, if we can get the Israelite men to start sleeping with the Moabite women, they'll soon be worshiping their gods. We can win this nation over through their libido, through the bedroom, basically. So the men of Israel, we're told, begin to indulge in sexual immorality with the women of the land. And God's judgment begins to fall. And he says to Moses, you need to take the leaders who have indulged in sexual immorality. You literally need to kill them as examples before the people. And in that moment, as they stand outside the tent of meeting, and it says they're weeping before the Lord because we know his judgment is coming. An Israelite man walks by with a Moabite prostitute on his arm and into his tent. A man named Phineas, who just so happens to be a Levite, grabs a spear, follows them into that tent, right into the bedchamber, the text tells us. And he thrusts that spear through the man and the woman. And in Numbers 25, it says, Phineas, this Levite, has turned my anger away. Tell him I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God. So why did God choose the Levites? Because of their passion for the Lord. The zeal for the things of the Lord set them apart. So they were the first ones to sing. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. But the third way that we could look at this covenant of Levi is the direct connection to our text. If you go back to that revival service that Ezra and Nehemiah rallied the people to, the temple has been rebuilt, and years later, the wall of the city has been rebuilt. And before the families start moving in from the villages and begin to rebuild the houses and to begin to actually live in Jerusalem, something far more critical needs to take place. It is time for us to celebrate before the Lord. You see, we think that a year of this pandemic is bad. But try 70 years as living as prisoners of war in a foreign land, and then decades to resettle and rebuild your own nation, and their isolation in this time was stirring the fires of revival and renewal. They had witnessed God's faithfulness through Zerubbabel, as he led the temple construction, their hearts had been warmed under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Nehemiah comes to town. They have never known a man like Nehemiah. A combination of full-on dependence on the Spirit of God. A man who was easily uh, turned to tears. He would weep as he talked about the city. And yet, conversely, he was the most tenacious, bulldog-like leader they had ever seen. Opposition tried to take him out. He just kept going. He so believed that God was going to do what God said he was going to do that he would not rest until his work was done. And now it's time for a party. A church service like we have never had in our lifetime, actually. And Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us that story. So you might want to write that down and study that text later. It is indeed a massive revival service. They gather in the town square. It says they clear the rubble away and they build a pulpit. And the preacher, Ezra, stands up to preach. And he opens the book to read. And he reads. And he reads. And he reads. And he reads. 
And Nehemiah 8 verse 5 says, as he opened the book, the people stood to their feet. You can imagine the emotion that is coursing through their veins after 70 long years of exile and probably another 50 to 60 years before the temple and the walls are complete. They had not been in a worship service like this ever, ever in their lifetime. And as Ezra blesses the people around him, they respond with, Amen! Amen! They lift up their hands in worship, the text tells us, and soon we find them on their knees and eventually on their face, worshiping the Lord. And it is literally a marathon preach-off from morning till noon. Ezra plus, plus at least 13 other preachers are named. They read the word and explain what it means. They read the book and explain what it means. Read, explain, read, explain, read, explain. It is expository preaching at its very best. And as the word is being preached, the tears start to flow in people's eyes. It has been so long since they have soaked in the word of the Lord. It has been so long since we could gather like this in freedom. It has been so long since a preacher stood up with the book and told us what it means and they begin to weep. Tears of joy, tears of sorrow, tears of repentance, tears of release. Nehemiah has to jump in. He jumps in and he's like, oh, my dear friends, not today. No tears today. Today is not the day for weeping. That day is going to come, but today is a day of celebration. You've got to get out the barbecue. You've got to get out the best wine. You've got to share something with those who've come. Everybody join together. This is a day to celebrate. And in chapter 8, verse 10, it says, The day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And a few verses later, it says, From the days of Joshua until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. For eight days, they party and they pray and they worship. They listen to great preaching. They hear amazing choirs. They share meals. They fellowship before the Lord. And if we had a time travel machine that we could get into, this is one of those moments in Old Testament history that definitely we would want to be part of. Three weeks pass, and now they're back again. And this time, it's for a solemn assembly. We got into the trouble that we're in because we rebelled against the Lord. We must confess our sins. We must repent and turn to the Lord. There are three specific areas that they acknowledge they've not been faithful to the Lord. We've not honored God in our giving. We've not honored God in keeping his Sabbath. And finally, we have not honored God in our marriages. Relevant text, hey? In Nehemiah 9.38, it says, In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Now, some of you, I can read your minds, I can see through that camera. By about now, you're wondering, and what does this exactly have to do with Malachi? And I'm so glad you asked. 
because it has everything to do with the text that we're studying today. This amazing revival was actually short-lived. Amazing preaching, amazing worship, feasting before the Lord, and literally writing down their confessions and signing them in a covenant. But just a few short years later, all of the issues that they've committed to fix are running rampant through the nation once again, and Malachi is sent by God to call them back to this covenant once again. And you might ask the question, why does revival not stick? 20 years ago, when those planes went through the towers in New York City, and one hits the Pentagon, and a fourth is headed to Washington, D.C., and crashes in Pennsylvania. In the following weeks, all of North America, it seemed, was rushing to get back to church. Church attendance literally skyrocketed in the weeks following that event. We thought, it's time for revival. But in a few short months, we were back to life as normal. Right now, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and we have been shut out of our gatherings. And there are so many who are expressing the same thoughts that I have, desperately longing to be together with the people of God, to get back to normal, quote unquote, to be back in a full house of worship with no masks, full throttle singing, lift your hands and worship, do as you please, back to worshiping God. Back to, remember the announcements? Please, squish together. We need every seat because there's people still in the foyer trying to find their way in. A full house, can you imagine? But the question we have to ask ourselves is, even after this, will revival last? What do we take away from this? At least three things. Number one, leadership matters. The context reminds us of the critical importance of strong, faithful, spirit-led leadership. You see, as long as Nehemiah was around and Ezra alongside of him, the people were following the law. Ezra apparently passes, and Nehemiah is called back to the capital. And so in this leadership vacuum, without strong leadership, the people do stupid things. And we shouldn't be shocked because it's our human tendency that when there's a void, we end up doing things that we would never do when there is strong, godly leadership. Secondly, zeal matters. Holiness matters. The choice of Levi, this particular tribe, shows us that God is deeply concerned for the honor and the glory of his name. And while some of the Details of those Old Testament stories are hard to read. They are certainly not the Sunday school stories that we make flannel graphs out of for our children. What they show us is that the zeal for the Lord ran through this tribe. This tribe of Levi was set apart for its passion, for its fire, a zeal for God. And finally, we need to be reminded that the word matters. You see, Malachi thought that the primary role of the priest was to guard the word of the Lord. People should expect that you teach accurately from the word. And why is this a battle and why is it so critical? Because the people of this book, if you and I call ourselves people of this book, we are going to be a countercultural people. 
We are actually going to be out of step with our culture. We are called to live by God's kingdom culture. And his rule and his reign is in so many ways the direct opposite of the way that our world is headed. And the only way we stand a chance of keeping our spiritual sanity in our day and age is if we are saturated with the word of God. There are hundreds, hundreds of references to the importance of the Word of God. I want to give you one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Amos chapter 8 says this. It's a prophetic word. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the Word of the Lord, but they won't find it. And then a New Testament text. The time will come, 2 Timothy 4 says, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I don't know if you see the two equal but opposite sides of the same coin. On the one side, you have people so hungry for the word of the Lord. They're like, where can I get good teaching? Where can I get good preaching? Where is it that people will just stand up with the book and read it and explain it? But the flip side are people who reject sound teaching. I'm just going to find teachers who say what I want them to say. And you see, Satan's strategy from the very beginning were those words, did God really say? In the garden with Adam and Eve, and in the wilderness with Jesus, if you're truly the Son of God, did God really mean it at your baptism when he declared you his Son? And it is his strategy today to keep us from this book to get us to believe that it's filled with errors, that it's out of date, that it's hard to understand, that it needs to be reinterpreted. Uh, What it says there in black and white is not really what it means for our day. So chapter 2 of Malachi basically says, listen up. If you will not honor me, then I will humble you, because make no mistake, my covenant with Levi is going to stand. So we got to land this baby, and how should we do that? At least three specific applications. Number one, we should pray for our leaders because this text is indeed speaking to leaders. We should pray for pastors and elders and professors and theologians and Bible school teachers and scholars. All across our nation, we should be praying, Lord, would you raise up men and women of this book? Would you raise up leaders who are faithful to this book? Secondly, we should guard our own souls. Our own life and doctrine. Leaders, yes, but remember, as we heard last weekend, we are all priests in this new covenant. The priesthood of all believers. And so we must monitor our own spiritual temperature. And let me ask you, how long has it been since you have had a white hot fire in your soul for the things of the Lord? We must monitor our own souls. And thirdly, and above all, we must commit ourselves to be students of the word. This book is life. Psalm chapter 1 is one of my favorites. And it says, The person who delights in God's word is going to be like a tree that is planted by streams of water, 
And that tree yields its fruits in season and out of season. Its leaf never withers. Whatever these people do prospers. It's a beautiful picture. And why is it so important? Well, at least three reasons, and I've mentioned them already, but just to capsulize them again. Our propensity, number one, to spiritual drift. You see, we need the continual renewal of our minds, the ongoing daily transformation. G.K. Chesterton was an evangelical Catholic. He had a saying, he said, you know what? I go to bed a Christian, but I wake up a pagan. I go to bed a Christian, but I wake up a pagan. That I need the gospel of Jesus Christ all over again every day. That the Spirit of God would teach me anew and afresh today. Fresh mercies for this day. You can trace spiritual drift in individual lives. People who were once on fire who gradually drift away. You can trace it in institutions and organizations. Look at every Ivy League university in North America. The vast majority of them were founded as evangelical Christian schools, and most of them you cannot find the gospel today. Think of the YMCA. Do you know what those letters YMCA stand for? The Young Men's Christian Association, and later the Young Women's Christian Association. Did you know that? It was founded in the 1880s by Sir George Williams because he looked across his city and he said there is nothing good in the city for young men except pubs and prostitutes. So in an era known as muscular Christianity, he said we're going to whip these guys into shape. We're going to whip their bodies into shape and we're going to whip their spiritual souls into shape. The Young Men's Christian Association was born. You know, fast forward 150 years. You can still go to the YMCA for a good workout in the gym, but you will not find a Bible study there anymore. Even in denominations. If you trace the history of the so-called mainline or liberal denominations today, if you go back and far enough in time, there was a time they were orthodox. But somewhere along the line, they began to drift and compromise like a frog in the kettle. Our propensity is spiritual drift. Secondly, the battle for the word of God is the number one spiritual battle over our lives. You see, we serve a God who speaks. Genesis 1, 10 times, and he spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke. And then the first words out of Satan's mouth in Genesis 3, did God really say? It has been his number one strategy in every generation Change the word of God, tone it down, dress it up, change it, reinterpret it, find a way to explain it away. We know better. We are smarter. Our generation knows what other generations before us didn't know. We have found a better way to read the Bible. This is the number one battle over our souls, the battle for the word. And finally, it's critical because the eternity of our kids and our grandkids is at stake. Now, it's not our text today. But as you get further into this book, as you get into chapter 2 and chapter 4, it says, why am I worried about godly marriages? Because I'm worried about godly offspring. I'm worried about godly parents because children never rise above the spiritual temperature of their parents. You should recognize that a day is going to come before the great and mighty day of the Lord. I'm going to send you a prophet. He'll turn the father's hearts back to their children, the children back to their father. I'm concerned for your families. That's John the Baptist language there. It is a heavy text, I'll give you that. And if you're feeling the weight of it, then you've understood it correctly. 
The glory, the Hebrew word is kabod, and it literally means heaviness, weightiness of the glory of our God. And I'll be straight with you. Rightly understood, a text like this has the power to crush us under its weight. Because if this is what our holy God requires of us, then I have no chance of standing in his presence. If leadership matters, zeal and holiness matters, if the word matters, and if it is all up to us, humanly speaking, we are in deep trouble. And so as we close this off, I've got to remind you, as we try to do every week, I've got to remind you that there is a perfect leader that we can look to 100% of the time. There is a leader who never fails. There is a leader who always keeps his word. There is a leader who uses his power and authority to bless, never to abuse or control. There is a leader who says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There is a leader who, when you are down, he lifts you up. A bruised reed, I will not break. A smoldering wick, I will not snuff out. I am for you. Lean on me. There is a Savior whose white-hot zeal never fails, who before the foundation of the world looked down through history and he saw our brokenness, he saw our sin, our rebellion, and he's like, Father, we've got to make a plan. And I'm going to go down there and I'm going to live a perfect life and then I'm going to give my perfect life up in exchange for their sin. And so Jesus, who on his earthly life goes into the court of the Gentiles and turns over the tables... How dare you set up these tables here in this spot? Have you not read Isaiah 56? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the only place a foreigner can come to my house and pray. Get out of here. Jesus, who set his face like a flint toward the cross. Jesus, who we're told endured suffering and shame on the cross because of the joy set before him. Jesus, who is right now sitting at the Father's right hand and still working, ever interceding for us, and one day soon will come riding back into human history on a white stallion. If, stallion, if you need some zeal, then borrow some from the King of Kings, because he has an abundant supply. And finally, he comes to you and me and he says, are you thirsty? Then come and drink. Are you hungry? Come and eat. Feast at this table. Mine its depths. Let it wash over you. Remember, he is the living word. He wrote the book and he guides us in the book today. So in other words, Jesus is the leader we need. Jesus' holiness has us covered. Jesus has zeal to share. And Jesus' word will never ever fail us. So royal priests, holy nations, let's do the job he's called us to do. Lord, I pray that you would take your word. I pray that you would seal what needs to be sealed in our hearts and minds. I pray specifically, Lord, for the individual listening to this who has woken up today realizing that they are in that state of spiritual drift there was a time once in a time in their history where they were on fire for you. But for whatever reason, they have drifted. And oh, dear God, by your spirit, would you be gracious to them? Would you ignite a new and a fresh passion and zeal for the things of the Lord in their heart? We pray this blessing in the name of Jesus for his glory, for our great joy. Amen.